When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Founder Stories is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. <laughs> A founder's journey has its highs and lows. It's not a linear path. Every founder is also a regular person, filled with high hopes and big dreams. That middle part of their story, before they reach the top, is where we can catch them at their fullest potential. What we learn of their past gives us a glimpse into their future. This is Founder Stories. Our founder today may be Canadian, but she honed her craft in New York's gritty, competitive media world. Verena Von Fenton has worn many hats, including one at the Huffington Post in the early days of internet blogging. These days, she's bringing sophistication to people who also smoke weed. This is the story of Gossamer. My name is Verena Von Fenton. I am the co-founder of Gossamer, which is a lifestyle brand and publication for what we describe as people who also smoke weed. I grew up in Vancouver, Canada, until I was 18, and then I moved to New York. I went to Columbia. I knew I wanted to leave not just Vancouver, but Canada for school. I just felt like it was like a chance to go really somewhere else, and I was pretty gung-ho about going to school in a city. My sister had just moved to New York when I was 16 and I came to visit her and she was supposed to take me, I am outing her so hard on this, she's supposed to take me on a tour of some colleges on the East Coast. My mother has entrusted her 16-year-old daughter with her older daughter. I get to New York and she's like, do you really want to go up to Connecticut? You want to go to Rhode Island? You want to go to Massachusetts? She's like, I heard there's a good school in the city. And I was like, oh, that sounds great. So we went, we did a tour of Columbia, and I was like, this place is amazing, and promptly skipped all of the other planned travel and called my mom every day pretending we were somewhere else. So we were like, oh, Massachusetts is beautiful this time of year. Like, the leaves are just golden and lovely, and there's so much red brick. Uh, And instead, she just took me out to clubs for four days straight in New York. I just love this city. I just loved it. Like, I loved the energy of it. Columbia has a very, like, isolated, contained campus. And that felt really special to me to have that experience, but in, like, the fucking greatest city in the world. Can I swear? Yeah, of course. Okay. I always loved to write, and I started reading at a very, very young age and spent a lot of time writing stories. I was extremely shy until 
college even, maybe even after. And so I found like reading and writing a really good outlet and escape and a source of imagination. I grew up in like the peak and heyday of teen women's teen magazines. So like Sassy, Seventeen, Teen Vogue, Cosmo, Girl, Jane even, which was like sort of on the cusp. Sadly, like almost all of those are gone now, <laughs> but I absolutely loved them. The idea of being able to go work for a magazine was definitely something I wanted to do or thought I might do. I didn't necessarily participate in a lot of college extracurriculars or things that I think would have probably furthered my experience because I was too intimidated and I wish I like I could kick myself now. I did, however, intern at Condé when I was in college and it was sort of a floating internship. So I split time between Modern Bride magazine and then the at the time, the International Vogue sort of satellite offices. I'll share the floor. So I sort of rotated between Modern Bride and like trying to help out with some of like the International Vogue. I say this a lot. And I'm very comfortable saying it. I was a terrible intern. I really, really was. I, I didn't fully understand the value of an internship at the time. I was a sophomore, so I think I was a little early for it too. I mean, it's it's obviously good to have experience, but most of the other young women in the program were juniors or seniors who were really like looking at this as, I'm gonna try and get a job out of this. I'm graduating in six months and like, I want a job. And I had sort of applied and gone through the process because I thought it was something I was supposed to do. It felt perfunctory for, for me as opposed to something I was like really treating like a professional pursuit. And so I was not a good intern. I, I really flagged that. I spent a lot of time in college when I wasn't in class actually working. I had to make money. I didn't have any money. I was, you know, on a lot of financial aid to go to school. I had a lot of loans. So I worked almost 30 hours a week in college at different restaurants, hostessing, coat checking. During the summer, I did like bottle service at <laughs> nightclubs. And I loved that part of the city, though. Like, I really, I think, you know, people say this all the time. It's really true. I think everyone should work in the service industry at, at some point in their life. If you can do it in New York, even better. So when I had interned at Condé, I thought I wanted to ultimately work at magazines. And when I graduated, I was also interning for a jewelry designer that made fine jewelry and I was working on the production and sort of supporting a little bit on the sales side of things. I was like running molds and gold and diamonds in between offices of the Diamond District in New York. So if you are at all familiar with the Diamond District, it is a community that is largely Russian. It is also like a very large Orthodox Jewish community. And I spent most of my days just like schlepping. I, I still can't believe I was tasked with this sort of, they must have had insurance on me, but just like schlepping fuck ton of gold and diamonds in between floors of the Diamond District. So I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do when I graduated, but I knew that if I wanted a job with the jewelry designer, I could probably get it because I'd been there and I knew they were looking to hire up. I remember having some conversations with friends who were like, oh yeah, man, like, we're going to go hiking in Nepal. Like, you should join us. Like, a lot of friends were doing something like that the summer after graduation. And I remember sort of looking at them and just not understanding the logistics of it. Not, you know, the plane travel or whatever. But I was like, well, what are you going to do with your stuff? They're like, oh, well, my parents are picking it up. Or the, their answer was like, oh, I already am renting an apartment. 
and I'm just going to put my stuff there. And I was like, well, how are you paying for the apartment? Their parents are paying for the apartment, so they're going to go hike in Nepal. Or I was like, well, my student loans kick in. Like, I have to start paying them in July. Like, what are you doing? And they were like, oh, I don't have those. <laughs> I sort of was looking around, realizing, like, I didn't necessarily understand the financial un- underpinnings that enabled them to be a little more laissez-faire around what they were thinking they were going to do post-college. So I was like, let me take this job at the jewelry designer. I need to pay rent. I need to pay my student loans. I need to figure out a place to live. And this is a job in the hand and I will figure out what I will do from there. And I actually loved that job. I was there for almost 18 months, ended up working on the sales side as an account executive. I traveled all over the country. I had specialty stores as my account. So like Saks, their locations across the country, a little bit in the Caribbean. I had stores in like Oklahoma that I was visiting all the time. And then I spent a lot of time in Excel, which I think is also a very good thing to do. From there, I spent a lot of time reading the internet at this job. This was 2005 when I graduated college and I was there until about 2007. So it was like peak blog internet. It didn't feel like a world in which you could get a job. People were writing on the internet because they loved it. Right around then, the Huffington Post launched. And a friend of a friend was writing there. And I just reached out to her and was like, can I write something? Anything. I just want to be able to, you know, write something for the Internet, (laughs) which sounds like such a funny phrase. But that's how I felt at the time. So I just begged and said, can I write anything? Little did I know that the Huffington Post was like anyone can write (laughs) for us. sort of was their business model, like it was unpaid. I think one of the first things I wrote about was about, was the the trend, God, I hope this is scrubbed from the internet, was the sort of moment at which every starlet was not just going to jail, but like going to jail while pregnant. It, it was like Nicole Richie, I mean, Lindsay Lohan didn't, but she did go to jail, Paris Hilton. Like it was just this moment of like, I don't know. So I'm sure it was something that if I read it now, I would be like, oh, that was... So anti-feminist and whatever else, but it was just meant to be sort of pithy and funny. And for some reason, it did relatively well, the article, and it caught the eye of Ariana Huffington. And then another editor at the time there, Anya Stremian, who is now a dear, dear, dear friend and who is also an editor at the New York Times on the style section. And Anya reached out to me and said, hey, I saw this thing you wrote for us. Ariana saw it as well. Could we have lunch? We'd like to talk to you. So I ended up meeting Anya, not Ariana, but Anya for lunch. She was like, can you write a couple more things for me? It can be whatever you want, but something sort of voicey, fun. They were starting to realize they wanted to bring in a different demographic, namely women. And they wanted to be able to expand beyond politics. So Anya was sort of looking for ways to do that. So I wrote a couple more things that did relatively well, at which point Ariana reached out and asked me if I would commit to writing a column. And her idea around the column was spirituality, because most people don't necessarily realize this. They think of Ariana as someone who is extremely political and politically focused. And she said, I want to write about spirituality. I want it from an urban perspective, and I want it from a skeptic. She was like, you know, I want it to be like sex in the city, but spirituality. So I did that for a year. I wrote once a week on the side, unpaid. The whole HuffPost model was unpaid bloggers, thousands of them. I didn't know any better. I had no idea. It didn't even occur to me to ask 
to get paid. I felt like I was being given the privilege, and that's how they positioned it, the platform to write. In hindsight, I might have still done the same thing. I wouldn't encourage anyone else to. The only reason I think I did it and that it worked for me and the advice I do give people now, if you're not writing anywhere else, if you're going to write for free, write for yourself, right? Like start, do it on Tumblr, if that even exists. I'm so old. <laughs> do it, get a WordPress site. Like just start writing. I can get a Twitter account. I don't care. I wasn't doing any of that. And so for me, it kind of became an outlet like that. I treated it almost like my personal blog that was posted on the Huffington Post. At the end of that year, I was like the second most read blogger on the site, which was bizarre because, you know, they had like Jon Stewart writing for them. And out of that, I got a job offer. So they started expanding sections and they wanted to build out lifestyle content and they asked me to come on as an associate editor. And that's how I ended up at the Huffington Post. And that is where I met my co-founder, David. So I learned more in those two years than probably anywhere else ever again. But I was just exhausted by the end of it. From there, it was I could kind of do anything because publications particularly, you know, legacy media, like the Condes of the world, the Hearsts of the world, at that point were like, oh, you know, I guess we need to have a website. A lot of them in 2010, 2011, even, they didn't have content on their websites. Their websites were just places to drive magazine subscriptions. It all of a sudden opened this world to me that I felt like the ability to write those things for a Vogue someday or for Condé Nast Traveler or InStyle, that felt so impossible to me. It felt like something I didn't have the skill set for. I interned at Condé and I still didn't even know how to get my foot in the door. How do I pitch someone? And so being able to write online that quickly about the things I was passionate about sort of gave me the confidence to feel like, oh, maybe I can actually do it for some of these uh, other publications. But at the same time, I think what got me really excited was as everyone was sort of chanting print is dead, I was looking around and trying to figure out what was sustainable about what we were doing. Because as far as I could tell, we were just doing more, 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 more. It was write 12 articles a day. Then it was write 20 articles a day. Then it was get a team and make sure you're putting up 100 articles a day. No one's reading 100 articles a day. Nobody is. So you're just creating all of this content that isn't necessarily going anywhere, but you're doing it for advertiser eyeballs. And so I realized pretty early on, I want to say probably in 2010, that advertising, the thing that, you know, everyone said was the killing print because it was leaving print and moving to digital, it was going to leave digital too. Like it was not going to be supporting this long term. So I started looking around and thinking, what else can you do? What are other ways that you can keep this sort of world alive? Because I think telling stories is so important and entertaining people is important. Gossamer is a brand I think as I said before, but I'll say it again for people who also smoke weed. I co-founded it with my friend and business partner, David Wiener. He and I met working at the Huffington Post in 2008. I believe he was also on the blog team and then he was the editor of the New York section. And we have been friends ever since. After all of this, I ended up back at Condé, almost 10 years to the day of ending my internship. 
I went there uh, as the executive digital director for Lucky Magazine, which sadly doesn't exist anymore. But I took that job because Condé was interested in launching e-commerce. They were starting to look at different business models for their publications that went beyond advertising and trying to figure out how to monetize their audience. And that's what I went there to do. And that's what we did. So we launched something called Lucky Shops, where we used our editorial to inform a commerce buy. We held inventory, we managed fulfillment, and we married those two things. We had this super captive audience that was obsessed with Lucky and the recommendations. It was a publication for women who read it like a catalog. People would walk into stores and say, I want this. And I saw it in Lucky. And so, great. But now let's take some of that back from the store and why not create our own store? From there, I realized that there is a there there. That to take an existing community and to either, I don't want to say necessarily sell them product, but I also want to be very transparent about we're all selling someone something. Whether you realize it or not, you're selling advertising. And as a woman, I have spent my entire life being marketed to in some form or another. And as a writer and as an editor, I have spent my entire career marketing to people in some form or another, whether that's, you know, concretely through an ad partnership or more sort of implicitly when it's what to buy, where to buy it, how to wear it, what to read, what restaurants to go to, which celebrities to be interested in. I spent my career sort of telling people how they might want to spend their time. And so from that came the idea a little bit of Gossamer. Sometime around 2015, I was freelancing and consulting, and I spent a few years doing that. David was consulting at the same time, and we worked on a couple projects together. And I knew at that point I never wanted to go back to a full-time job. I felt that everywhere I had worked, literally everywhere, there was an incredibly talented woman doing all of the work. And somewhere above her, in an office I never saw, was a man making all the money. And I said to myself, the next thing I do, I am not doing all the work for someone else to make all the money. And so I knew I wanted to start something of my own. I wasn't necessarily sure what industry or space I wanted it to be in, but I knew that I understood how to marry content and commerce and how to evangelize an audience into a larger brand. And at that point, David had sort of started muttering a little bit about the cannabis space and what you know, sort of potential there might be there. I thought he was insane. He and I had smoked a lot of weed together. That's probably a little bit how we became friends. I don't think, you know, you work 60, 70, 80 hour weeks and not like need to unwind in some way or another with your coworkers. It was something we had in common. I grew up smoking weed. I mean, British Columbia has like a thriving cannabis culture. It's something I have always had a relationship with on and off and felt I don't want to say passionately about, but I sort of, the moment he said, have you ever thought about doing something in cannabis? I was sort of like, this is so bizarre that this thing that I have had a 20 something year relationship with is such an afterthought. I'm smoking it out of a pipe that I got on St. Mark's when I was 18 in 2001 (laughs) that has definitely seen better days. And yet for most of the world, I am like, your absolute target customer. I love to shop. I love a brand. I love a brand story. I'm willing to spend more. I care about what I'm buying and the provenance of it and the impact on the environment and the founder story. And there was absolutely nothing in the space that was speaking to me. So I saw that. That clicked for me pretty quickly once David mentioned it. 
there's three parts. Other side was the creative side. Cannabis felt so flexible. It is, you know, the thing that people smoke to turn one part of their brain off and the other part on, whether that is to take in an art show, watch a movie, go on a hike, compose music, write something, listen to music. You know, it enhances your experience of all of these creative pursuits. And so for David and I, we just felt after looking around and seeing more of the same everywhere in terms of media, doing something in cannabis would give us the flexibility to do almost anything. All we had to do was sort of give it that nod or that little sort of green lens or, or acknowledge that maybe the person reading what we were doing was high and the world was our oyster. And then the third part of it is that David had spent a couple years volunteering at a maximum security prison during college and right out of college. And he has always been very, very passionate and extremely entrenched in not just politics, but also like has a very, very deep understanding of what the political and legislative machinations mean for basically people who are not white and wealthy. And so he very early on was like, there's something we could do that might add some value to the world. And cannabis is unfortunately and horrifically one of the most just absolutely unequally prosecuted categories across the board. I mean, there are still now, as I'm doing this podcast and as people are buying legal weed, there are still people, largely men of color, sitting in jail for the exact same thing that like VCs are just throwing billions of dollars at other white people to launch businesses. So it's deeply problematic. And the idea of being able to maybe marry all of these three things, like a genuine business model, something that felt creatively fulfilling, and do it in a way that we felt could actually add value or try and help change the conversation or help people, because most people still honestly don't even realize it. They don't realize how unequally it's been policed. They don't realize the impact that the ability for, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow to sell a bong has on the 14-year-old kid in, I don't know, Chicago who got caught with a half a joint in his pocket and ended up in juvie and then in the prison industrial system and is kind of fucked for life. And I think you can't build a business or do anything in this space without at the very least acknowledging it, but hopefully, you know, doing something actively different. From the beginning, though, one thing we said is, look, what do we do best? We know how to tell stories and share those stories and get those stories read. So while we cannot necessarily speak to experiences we haven't lived, we can do our best to offer our platform or help elevate the stories from those who have lived them. When we started even thinking about, from an editorial perspective, what does Gossamer look like? We said, look, if you're really reading the news, like this isn't a secret. It is not a secret that black and brown men have been more historically persecuted for weed than any other segment of the population. That is the entire impetus behind the war on drugs. It was to criminalize an entire community of people in order to prevent them from voting. So we know this, but most people don't do the work to find that out. So. Where do most people sort of read things? They read things they enjoy. They read things that they're curious about or that are entertaining. And so if people want to come to us and say, oh man, a, a cannabis lifestyle magazine, that sounds cool. Oh, that bong, that's beautiful. I've never seen something so design worthy and, and thoughtful. Great, right next to that, I want you to read 
a first-person story from an anonymous dealer in New York who is writing about why they founded a queer-owned delivery service because they felt that they were deeply unsafe in trying to acquire weed, let alone sell it, and what it meant for their family to have immigrated from South America away from, you know, the drug cartels, and then to be now running an illegal cannabis business in New York. You want that pretty bong? I want you to read this person's story. And I want you to think about what you can do with your money, because you can do both. Not to put it on the consumer, but this is a business that is still so, so new. This is an industry that is so, so new that the consumer dollar matters more than anything else. Absolutely hands down. That is the only measurement by which companies are saying whether they're succeeding or failing. It is, are people buying my product? And if you as a consumer say, I don't want to purchase anything in the cannabis space unless I know that my money is also going to get people out of prison or my money is going to equity incubators that will help people who have been formerly incarcerated so that they can have a legal business instead of, you know, being fucked for life for having spent 10 years running the same business that is now getting front page coverage in the New York Times. We were very, very aware of it from the beginning. And I think for us, it was, can we show how diverse of an audience and of a consumer there is in cannabis. People who smoke weed are not a monolith at all. Almost everyone smokes weed. It cuts across every single line you can imagine. Politically, you know, you can be a, a huge Republican. They love weed. They love weed. Why? A lot of money. Also because they do like to smoke it. They just don't want to admit it. You can be a woman. You can be a man. Depend, no, your socioeconomic background. Like everyone has a relationship to, to cannabis in some form or another, or most people do, or they know someone who does. So for us, it was saying... How can we show how diverse and how beautiful this community is? And that means showing people that don't necessarily look like us, not just in the people we featured, the writers, the contributors, the artists, but also in the people we work with. And that stays true to this day. And then we also realized we wanted to add a financial component. And we are a very, very small business. And so the good thing about being a small business is that we have the flexibility to sort of make our own rules. And so in the pandemic, right when it started, actually, in March of 2020, one of the things we realized very quickly as people were talking about social distancing and as people were talking about not working from the office and working from home, what it meant for people who couldn't leave where they were. And for that, I'm talking about jails and that the U.S. has one of the only cash bail systems in the world, which means you can be in prison for a crime you have not yet been convicted of and often not even charged with. Like you haven't even been indicted. You've just been arrested. And if you don't have the cash bail, you may just sit in prison until you pay cash bail. And for some people that is years. We immediately started donating. I think we actually did 100% of our <laughs> profits for almost two weeks of March. We just said, fuck it, we don't need the money. Let's take this money and put it to good use. So we donated 100% of profits for two weeks straight to bail funds across the country to try and get as many people out of crowded prisons as possible while COVID was ravaging New York in particular, but certainly the country as a whole. And then from there, sort of looked at the bottom line and realized that hadn't hurt us all that much. Two weeks of profit is a lot of money. 
But we said, is there a way for us to do this kind of forever moving forward? And so from that point on, we have committed to donating minimum of 2%, some months up to 5% if we can do it, of all revenue. So that's not just profit. That's if you buy something from us, 2 to 5% of the money you give us, it just goes immediately out into a nonprofit. We vary them from month to month, but ideally ones that are working in some capacity of undoing the harms of the war on drugs or supporting communities who have been historically impacted by it. I think to have set that intention at so early of a stage in a company makes it really scalable because it's really hard to implement that once you're fully running and once you've got, let's say, even 10 employees. But if you're a company that's got dozens or hundreds or thousands of employees, you can't all of a sudden just take 2% of revenue away. But for us, it seemed like, well, if we start now and just assume that we only ever have 98% of our revenue, that we can scale this up and up and up until... It's not an afterthought. It's just a line item on our business. It's a cog. I wish more businesses would look at it that way. So how does a magazine make money? Gosmer launched as a magazine. We launched as a print publication, which is sort of hilarious in the context of everything I said about digital media and certainly not where I thought I would end up. But I think it was a bit of a response to how overwhelming the world of the internet is and push notifications and social and seeing 10 versions of the same article on Facebook that has the Kardashians in it. And we said, if people smoke weed, they smoke weed for a bit of an escape. They're smoking weed to give themselves a break, to give themselves a better experience. So if we want to make something that tells stories, if we want to create a vehicle to share those stories, what do we want that to look like? We've also been trained that most things should be free. Writing isn't free. It takes an incredible amount of work. Podcasts aren't free. They take a fuck ton of work. There's probably 20 people behind the scenes. Hi. Hello. What's up? Of everything that you consume that are putting in their blood, sweat, and tears to make it the best thing possible. We have trained ourselves that it's free because for a long time, advertisers subsidized it. We used to pay. We used to pay to subscribe. We used to pay for cable. The idea that you could just read and consume things forever for free was also something I wanted to push back on, not just to sort of like retrain our audience, but to also remind people the value that, you know, art and words and editorial have. As we continue to cover the cannabis space and look, we don't cover it the way like High Times does. Like, that's not what we do. The way we talk about it is is we are more interested in telling stories, in covering culture, art food, entertainment, travel, the types of things that might be of interest to someone who smokes weed or frankly of interest to anybody, but maybe is particularly compelling when you're high. So a lot of that has to do with the voice and the storytelling and the layout. But the small aspect of cannabis coverage that we did do and that we continue to do is often around education, whether that's on product recommendations, understanding you know, which brands are really worth giving your money to, telling founder stories, but also decoding what has ultimately been a very stigmatized and very opaque industry. For a long time, weed was just weed. Flower as a word was not something like the average consumer said. Cannabinoids, what the fuck is that? CBD, 
like five years ago, no one knew what CBD was. You know, I would also argue that large swaths of the population still don't know what CBD is. It just happens to be in everything right now. So we started doing a lot of education in terms of trying to help decode that. Just very, very baseline stuff so that people could have a base understanding of what this industry is, what this plant is, what the potential is and how they might be able to have a relationship with it that is just beyond smoking a joint in their basement. Some of my favorite questions that we still get to date, and I remember we got, this was an email that came in when we first launched that said, I really wanna order the magazine, but I live in Utah and I have two roommates who are extremely anti-weed. Is this something I'm going to have to hide? And we said, no, I like it, we promise you won't have to hide it. We will design it in a way that you don't have to be ashamed and they might not even know it's a weed magazine. I sort of say that because I keep that customer, that reader, top of mind all the time. Because it doesn't matter if they live in Utah, maybe they live in California. You don't know what their social community looks like. You don't know their religious background. You don't know their family network. It's still a stigmatized space. So there are a lot of people who would love to have access to the benefits of weed or CBD, but are nervous or rightly feel like they can't walk into a dispensary. So sleep was the number one thing. And the second number one thing was I really need it to be readily available to me. And so we started looking at some of the coverage we had done around CBD. And a lot of the brands that were launching in the space were marketing CBD. They still are. Is this cure-all? You know, it's going to solve every single problem you've ever had. And I can explain if you want me to from the science perspective what CBD does we have this endocannabinoid system, internal system in our body, like our lymphatic system or our respiratory system or our circulatory system. Our endocannabinoid system responds to cannabinoids that both humans produce, which are called endocannabinoids, and exocannabinoids, which are the ones we consume. Cannabinoids are found in all plants. They are most prolific in the cannabis plant. The endocannabinoid system is made up of receptors all over our body, everywhere. The endocannabinoid system regulates homeostasis in our body. So if you remember that from like 10th grade bio, homeostasis is the thing that makes sure all of your systems are running in tandem. And that happens thanks to the endocannabinoid system. CBD is a cannabinoid that stimulates the receptors in this system. And the reason when people sort of joke, wow, how can CBD do everything? Well, if what CBD does is help regulate your endocannabinoid system, your endocannabinoid system regulates all of your systems. So in some ways, yes, CBD can have an impact on almost all of these things. But that's speaking really, really, really broad strokes. And that's not necessarily thinking thoughtfully about formulation, about what the full spectrum of cannabinoids are and what you know the future of this plant could be. So with that in mind, we said... People keep selling CBD for sleep, but CBD is not a sedative. It doesn't actually put you to sleep. It might help you with anxiety if that's what's keeping you awake. It might help you with muscle pain if that's what's keeping you awake. But if you actually need something to put you to sleep, there is a secondary cannabinoid called CBN, cannabinol. There are over 130 different cannabinoids in this plant that we know of. We think there could be even more, but there's 130 that they have defined. CBN is one of them. And CBN is a straight up sedative. CBN is something that will put you to sleep. And so we said, can we make a product? Can we make a formulation that uses CBD, full spectrum CBD, meaning it has CBD, it has THC, it has the full spectrum of cannabinoids, but elevated amounts of CBN such that it is actually putting you to sleep. 
that was the idea behind our first product, Dusk. We launched that in January of 2019 in what we thought would be a sort of limited edition test and it sold out in, I think, 17 days. And we were sort of blown away. And we saw that return customer come back. And we realized we were sort of onto something special. From there, we launched a second. And to date, our, this that is our only, we have two wholly owned products. Our second was a response similar to the way we formulated Dusk was people saying, I already take Dusk and I love it, but now I need something for the day. So we started working on our product Dawn in about fall of 2019, I want to say, and launched it in August of 2020 during the pandemic. And we had spent, I guess, almost a year then working on getting the formulation exactly right. Dawn uses THCV, which is another secondary cannabinoid. It is not THC even though it has the same three first letters. THCV is a cannabinoid that is very energetic. It is also a mild appetite suppressant. If you think that like Red Bull redefined what a sports energy drink looked like, I think that the conversation around energy in five years won't exist without the acronym THCV. Like it is absolutely going to be the future of sort of activity-based performance. That's my prediction right now. Very early on, David and I recognized that cannabis was going to have one really, really, really big problem. And that problem was that it is regulated state by state and that brands could exist in California and be theoretically like the biggest brand in California and no one else anywhere across the country will ever have heard of them. And we realized that there was going to be an insane amount of money pouring into the space to build these brands that would theoretically own California. And then people would have to do that over and over and over again for every state. And that a lot of those companies, they might have maybe won California early on, maybe wouldn't win any of the other states or wouldn't resonate. The analogy that I think David uses, and so I, I, I want to give him some credit, is also when you think about prohibition around alcohol, you think about the alcohol that people were drinking during prohibition and maybe in the first like three to five years after it. Are, are those the brands that we're all talking about now? The biggest alcohol brands in the world did not come out of prohibition and certainly were not launched fully formed in the first year after alcohol was made legal again in this country. So we just looked around and said, this is going to take a lot of time before there is a really holistic market, before there is genuinely a consumer that feels 100% comfortable with the idea of cannabis, before cannabis is as normalized as alcohol is. David and I had worked both of our almost first job out of college was at a startup. And so we weren't necessarily ready to jump on that wheel again. And we know that the VC wheel can be a really good one. And if you find partners that are aligned and supportive, it's fantastic. But at the end of the day, money comes with strings. And we just felt really strongly that we wanted to build a brand for the long haul. We wanted to build a brand that we think could still be standing in a hundred years. That was going to take patience and that was going to take a genuine relationship with our community and to build a brand with our community, not with VC money. That doesn't mean we won't ever take it, <laughs> but I think the point was, let's build something that we feel has quality, can stand the test of time, that we are genuinely passionate about, and that we know 
our community is passionate about. And I think those things don't always go hand in hand with a lot of money out of the gate. I think for us, it was very important to build something that we felt no one else was doing, or at the very least, if we stopped existing, people would miss us. I don't think anyone can properly prepare you for what it means to start your own business. A lot of people tried. I asked a lot of a lot of people in terms of advice and questions and best practices. And the number one thing people told me was it is so hard. It is, you're going to love it, but it is so, so, so hard. The beginning, the first year can be extremely isolating. You spend a lot of time asking favors from people. You have to get really, really comfortable just asking for things because you have to. That's just how shit gets done. You have to ask someone how they did what they did so that you can do it or ask them to help you do it or ask them for an introduction or ask them for money. Constantly just ask, feeling like you're just asking people for something and not giving them anything yet, that can feel very demoralizing. But ultimately, I think then putting something out into the world that you feel like you really could stand behind. Like I stand behind every single aspect of Gossamer. You ask me anything. You ask me who supplies our packaging, how our fulfillment center treats its workers. You ask me why we don't source something from this factory in China. Like I know the answer to every single decision we make. And that to me is so validating that I feel like I know it with every fiber and bone in my being that I would stand behind absolutely everything we have done at Gossamer. That's what makes it worth it. The day we launched Dusk is the moment I felt like, oh, there's a real business here. I loved, I think we had three issues out the door at that point. I feel very strongly there is no magazine like Gossamer out there. But the moment we launched a product with one Instagram post and one e email newsletter about it and sold, you know, I don't know how many products we sold in that first day, but a few hundred that I was like, oh, my God, this is real. You know, we are still tiny, but this is real. So we have always wanted the magazine to be as tactile as possible. We've said if if someone's going to get high and read something, like let's make it a like multi-sensory experience. From the beginning, our cover stock has always been like sort of a little bit textured, like it has this sort of like speckled texture to it. But we always wanted to be able to do more. Doing more is very expensive, particularly in print. That hasn't necessarily stopped us. And when we were conceiving of the theme for this issue, it was during the pandemic. And what is the thing that I think we all missed more than anything else? And that was touch. I had, by all accounts, one of the most like privileged pandemics anyone, I mean, it's still going, could have had. But I know there was a period where the only other human being I touched was my boyfriend that I lived with. I remember the first hug that I gave someone who was not my boyfriend after I think almost six months, I burst into tears and it was just a friend. I just like could not believe I was touching another human being. So we said, let's make that the theme of the next issue. And so our designers, who are the most amazingly talented, lovely to work with human beings on the planet, Verena Mikulic, yes, there are two Verenas at Gossamer, and Christina Bartasova, they had for a while been campaigning about maybe doing some sort of textured fabric cover. And, and they said, for touch, can we do it? Can we do it? Can we do it? And I was like, oh my God, just the like the budget and numbers I'm going to have to crunch. So we settled on a fabric, a velvety feelable, fuzzy cover, as it turns out, is sort of the first of its kind. The paper 
provider, the fabric provider, was like, no one's ever tried to do this. No one's ever tried to print a soft cover book, which is what a magazine is with material like this. This magazine was literally hand fed through every machine. So thousands and thousands of units and every page was hand fed because it couldn't go through a printer. It really, there was so much work and care and effort put into this issue. And yes, it's $20, which, you know, for some people is a lot of money. And certainly if you're not used to buying specialty magazines, can seem expensive, but there was a lot of blood, sweat and tears that went into making this one. I want Gossamer to be the first place you go to if you are someone who cares about quality in your life and you want weed. And that doesn't mean you want to buy it. It could. You want to maybe you want to read about it. Maybe you want to smoke some weed and read something good. Maybe you want to figure out what CBD bomb to buy your mother. Maybe you are curious about a pre-roll. I just want Gossamer to be that answer to the question of like, I'm looking for a little something to make my life better and Gossamer is going to help me get there. Founder Stories is a production of Lola Media and is hosted by me, Mesh Lakani. Thank you to Verena Von Fenton for sharing her journey with us. To find out more about Gossamer and to check out their touch issue, visit their website at gossamer.co. That's gossamer.co. This episode was produced and mixed by Ramsey Yunt with our senior producer, Olivia Briley. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. We, of course, appreciate you sharing this with your friends and subscribing to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. Until next time.